saving money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Diane Hollick? In 2001, 43-year-old Diane Hollick lived in Austin, Texas. She had moved there in 1996. Her job was managing new employees at IBM. Diane owned a nice house in an upscale neighborhood. She had two dogs. Her job required her to travel quite a bit. A friend of hers named Ray had keys to her house and would visit frequently to take care of various tasks, like caring for her dogs. They had met after she hired him to work at IBM. Ray was interested in Diane romantically, but she never reciprocated any of his feelings. He would buy her gifts, hoping that someday she would change her mind. Ray would later admit that he wanted to have sex with Diane, but she was not interested. Diane's friends thought that Ray was obsessive and strange. Diane did want a romantic relationship with someone, just not with Ray. She joined a dating service and found a man named Dennis, who was a business owner in Houston, Texas. Diane's friends suggested that Dennis was pushy, demanding, and argumentative. Two months after meeting, Dennis proposed to Diane, and she accepted. He gave her an engagement ring that she wore all the time. It cost $17,500. Diane's intention was to sell her house in Austin and move to Houston, where she and Dennis were going to build a house. The couple argued about this move. Dennis did not want Diane to take her dogs and did not like her going out dancing with friends. To address the difficulties in the relationship, they entered into couples counseling. The engagement was called off, but Diane still intended to move to Houston to be with Dennis. Oddly, she also set up a date with another man. Diane hired a real estate agent who was a neighbor and listed her house for sale. She was trying to get $450,000 for the house. The housing market at that time in Austin, Texas was not good for sellers. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On November 15, 2001, Diane was alone in her house when a man named Patrick Russo visited Patrick told her that he was a cash buyer. He didn't have an appointment to see the house, but he was wondering if he could still take a tour. He said that he would be moving there with his wife, and he was checking the house out for her. That afternoon, it had been raining heavily. Patrick was wet. Diane allowed him to enter her house and gave him a towel, which he used to dry his hair. At some point, they went upstairs. Patrick attacked Diane and restrained her hands behind her back with zip ties or something like that. Sometime between 3 p.m. that day and 3 a.m. the next day, he strangled her. He took jewelry, including the engagement ring, off of her finger, cleaned the crime scene, and left undetected. 
The next day, November 16, Diane missed a conference call at 10 a.m. Several people tried to reach her unsuccessfully. One of them notified the police, who discovered Diane's body in an upstairs bedroom. The investigation revealed a number of items. There was no sign of forced entry. All the doors and windows were locked. There was no sign of a struggle. Diane's body was fully dressed. It looked like she had been staged near the bed. There was no sign of any type of an assault of a sexual nature. There were marks on her wrists consistent with zip ties. Her engagement ring was missing along with other jewelry. A spare key for the front door was missing from its usual place on a doorknob on a first floor door. The crime scene was thoroughly cleaned, so much so that Diane's fingerprints were missing from areas where the police should have found them. There was a green towel on a couch in the living room that had hair on it. The police interviewed Diane's boyfriend, Dennis, on November 16. He did not seem particularly concerned about her death. He noted some problems in the relationship. For example, Diane wanted him to be more of a handyman like her father. Dennis told the police that he spoke to Diane on November 15 at 2 p.m. She told him about a guy who was interested in looking at the house. Dennis said that maybe Diane's friend Ray was involved in her murder. He said that Ray had a habit of pursuing women who did not want him. The police interviewed Ray. He admitted that he was attracted to Diane and disappointed that the relationship did not involve sex. Ray pointed the finger at Dennis saying that he was not the right person for Diane. The police noticed that Ray was overly eager to help with the investigation. The police had no evidence linking Dennis or Ray to the murder. They decided to visit Diane's neighborhood again and talk to other homeowners whose houses were for sale. Several female homeowners reported being visited by a strange man. Later, it would be discovered that this was Patrick Russo, but at this point, nobody knew who it was. The man wanted to take an unscheduled tour in the middle of the day. He claimed he could pay for the house in cash. He supplied a variety of names to different people. They had a bad feeling about him. They described him as strange and scary looking. Many of the women would not open the door. One woman who was a real estate agent and was selling her own house decided to let him in. Once he was inside, he asked her if she lived alone and he wanted to see the upstairs bedrooms. The woman became concerned and asked him to leave. Before he left, she asked him for his name and phone number. The police investigated the name and they tracked down the phone number, but it was clear that neither one was tied to the killer. The women who had been approached by the man helped the police create a sketch, which was featured on the local news. Many people called and reported seeing a man fitting this description trying to tour houses. One real estate agent named Tammy showed this man a house. He would not look at her, and he tried to get close to her a few times. She was thinking about how she could escape from him. Eventually, she was able to get him out of the house. Another woman, who was visited by the man just after her husband left for work, said that the man became angry when she would not let him into the house. She was concerned about his behavior, and because the same man had visited her house six months earlier, in May of 2001. The woman wrote down his license plate number. From this, the police were able to identify Patrick Russo as the man who was visiting these houses. The police interviewed him. He spoke candidly about his time in prison, admitting that he was guilty of the offense that put him there, namely choking a woman, but he denied ever visiting any houses to take a tour. 
He implied that he had found religion in prison and was no longer a threat to society. He was a music minister. He had changed. Another homeowner came forward and said that she had encountered a strange man who wanted to look at her house. She let him in. He asked questions about when her husband would be home and about the alarm system. At one point, the man's mannerisms changed drastically. He stopped talking, and he had a strange look in his eyes. The homeowner kept creating distance between herself and the man. Eventually, he left, but not before leaving a flyer behind in the house. The police were able to match the fingerprints on that flyer to Patrick Russo. They knew, at the very least, he was lying. Later, much more inculpatory evidence would be discovered. Patrick was arrested for the murder of Diane Hollick. In February of 2004, he was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to life in prison. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Now moving to my analysis. Was Patrick Russo actually guilty of murder? He maintains his innocence while in prison. Let's take a look at the factors both for and against the idea that he was guilty, starting with the inculpatory evidence. Data from Patrick's cell phone placed him near Diane's house on November 15. His DNA matched the hair found on the green towel and the DNA found on Diane's hand. He was identified by at least five women as the man who visited their houses wanting to take a tour. He used different names during those encounters. His fingerprint was on a flyer left at one of the houses. About 12 female real estate agents said they had been contacted by a man who most of them identified as Patrick Russo. They said that he told them he was a cash buyer, he insisted on seeing vacant houses only, and he wanted to meet the women at the houses. Many of the women were uncomfortable while showing him the houses. Patrick had just under $1,800 in the bank 
and owed almost $200,000 on the trailer where he lived with his second wife. There was no way he was going to pay cash for a home that cost several hundred thousand dollars. Apparently, Patrick met his second wife when he was in prison for choking a woman. One thinks of the phrase here, scraping the bottom of the barrel, but this is like pushing the barrel out of the way and digging 10 feet into the ground to find a desired outcome. Patrick was not a suitable mate by any definition, and it's hard to imagine why someone would think he was. Patrick lied about his alibi. He said he visited a radio station about playing his music, but they said he was never there. Apparently, he was well known to them. He had visited there in the past about his music. After being interviewed by the police, Patrick went to visit the pastor of the church where he worked. He told the pastor that he felt as though he was going to be arrested for killing a lady and that some jewelry had been taken from the victim. The police had not released the information about the jewelry. Patrick's first wife said that he could not have an orgasm unless he was choking her. She thought that she was going to die a few times. Patrick was on parole after serving time for choking a woman. Patrick had a paid subscription to a website featuring images and videos of women posing as if they were being asphyxiated. Moving to the exculpatory evidence, no witnesses or video placed Patrick at the scene of the murder. Diane had other men in her life who violated boundaries, although there was no indication of violence and their alibis checked out. That's pretty much it for exculpatory evidence. There's not a lot in this case. When considering the evidence, do I think that Patrick Russo was guilty? Yes, I believe he was guilty in reality and guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. This is one of those few cases where the evidence could be characterized as overwhelming. I will now offer my thoughts on a few items that stood out to me in this case. Item number one, Patrick Russo visited a number of women before committing homicide. Of the five women I mentioned, he visited two of their houses twice. It is believed he visited Diane Hollick twice as well, one time when she was murdered and one time earlier that same day. Patrick was increasing his risk by interacting with all these different potential victims. It's like he was worried about trying to get the situation perfect before he committed murder. He wanted things to be just right. For example, he kept trying to get potential victims into an upstairs bedroom, which of course is where he killed Diane. He may have been focused on the bedroom in order to simulate an environment that is associated with sex or to simply get the women further away from safety. Item number two, the police believe that both Dennis and Ray behaved strangely and had the wrong emotional responses to her death. They didn't have anything to do with her murder, and there was no physical evidence tying them to the crime, but the police were looking at them more closely because of this observation about the emotions. I think this exemplifies how emotional reactions do not necessarily indicate guilt or innocence, and how many individuals are involved with people who violate boundaries. Item number three, law enforcement may have been suspicious about Dennis and Ray, but before the homicide, they appeared to ignore warning signs about Patrick. He was an obvious danger to society. He was on parole for choking a woman. His behavior was strange and made people uncomfortable. He was visiting houses he could not afford, and he was on a website featuring simulated homicide. It was clear that Patrick was intent on committing a serious crime. Where was law enforcement? They often hold themselves out as experts on human behavior, including detecting incorrect emotional reactions, yet they could not spot Patrick 
when he was right in front of them. They were responsible for monitoring his behavior, but did not notice anything wrong. Item number four, all of the women who reported interacting with Patrick became uncomfortable in his presence. They picked up on many different signs. For example, he showed up unannounced, claiming to be a cash buyer. He was sweating. He avoided eye contact. His hands were shaking. His mannerisms would suddenly change. He had a strange look in his eyes. He asked questions about if the women were alone, when their husbands or partners were returning, and about alarm systems. He always said the words, after you, and tried to get the women to walk in front of him. He rejected the idea of simply using a real estate agent when that was suggested, and he became angry when turned away from the house. The women he encountered knew that something was wrong. They didn't know he was a killer, but they knew that his behavior deviated from what was normal. This was enough for them to react defensively, which was a wise decision. Their intuition was superior to the intuition displayed by law enforcement in this case. This brings me to item number five. Why didn't Diane react the same as the other women? Why did she invite Patrick into her home and go upstairs with him, assuming that she did both of these voluntarily? There is no way to know, but here's my theory. It involves a few different factors. When Patrick came to her house, he was soaking wet from being out in the rain. He may have seemed less threatening. For example, Diane would not have been able to see if he was sweating or not, and she would not have been focused on his shaking hands. Diane was accustomed to having men in her life who violated boundaries, so maybe Patrick's behavior did not seem out of the ordinary. Diane kept accepting gifts from Ray, even though she was not interested in him romantically. In addition, Diane had scheduled a date with a man on the night that she was killed, yet she continued to wear the engagement ring she received from Dennis. There is the sense that Diane felt confident about managing men who were demanding, controlling, and obsessive. It did not worry her. She may have trusted that the men would operate within limits, like they might be coercive, but they would not become violent. Diane may have disregarded some of the warning signs because she desperately wanted to sell her house. Now moving to my final thoughts. I think the theme of this case is the concept of opposing forces. As far as Patrick, he was sadistic and desperately wanted to commit a murder, but he was also anxious. These two powerful forces pushed him in opposite directions, but ultimately, the negative motivation was victorious. As far as Diane, she wanted to stay safe, but also wanted to sell her house. Unfortunately, the latter motivation was dominant. The lesson learned in this case is how it is important to recognize and react appropriately to boundary violations. It is not wise to become comfortable with them or to develop unrealistic expectations about managing them. They don't usually predict somebody will commit murder, but they always point to a negative outcome of some type. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.